Hello and welcome to episode 12 of Coffee and Circuses. This week I'm joined by Joe Stoner. Joe has been working as a postdoctoral researcher on the AHRC funded project Roman and Late Antique Artifacts in Egypt, along with Kent's own Ellen Swift and Manchester Met's April Pudsey. And if you go back to the very first episode of the podcast, you can listen to Ellen talking about this project as well. On the day this episode goes out, though, they will be opening an exhibition based on the musical instruments they've been looking at and have recreated in this study at the Petrie Museum of Egyptology in London. And it's going to be running until the 22nd of April. And most importantly, it's free to get in. Can't really say no. So unsurprisingly, we're talking a lot about this project in today's show. But we're also discussing Joe's forthcoming book, The Cultural Lives of Domestic Objects in Late Antiquity, in which he explores not just the monetary worth of items, but their emotional value and the variety of meanings that they can hold. We also cover the growing love of craft this has generated in her, especially when it comes to baskets, how it wasn't until her third shot undergraduate she found where she belonged, and now how it's all coming up stoner. Just a quick note on track, we've further extended the deadline for early bird tickets and are now going to be available until Monday the 28th of January. So if you want to come to track and you can actually see Jo chairing a session on the themes she's discussing in today's episode, if you want to head over to the track website and follow the links to get your tickets while they're still cheap. And then just on another note as well, thanks to everybody that's been sharing the podcast and promoting it in some way or another on the likes of Twitter and across social media. Don't forget you can subscribe via Spotify and iTunes. And if you so wish, leave a rating on iTunes. So thanks a lot for joining me and on to the show. So how was New Zealand? Yeah, it was good. I mean, it was, yeah, it was good. It was, um, I, I was there for too long, I think. But You were there for like a month, right? Yeah, it felt like it as well. It was it was really nice and it was obviously good to see my sister, but she lives out a small, really small town and there's no transport links and stuff. And it's beautiful, like really nice and did loads of stuff. Like she was really good. We like, drove to the beach every day. So I swam in the sea most days and it's very relaxing in that sense. But if you want to actually do anything else, you have to have a car. And I didn't have access to a car. So there was a lot of me. And also I had loads of work to do. Mm. Loads and loads of work to do. So there was lots of me sitting in her house. I went all the way to New Zealand to sit in her house and like fill out application forms. So you didn't get to go see Hobbiton or anything like that at all? No, I went to Wellington. My niece lives in Wellington. And I went and stayed with her for a couple of days. But this was just before I came back. So I flew out of Wellington. And I had loads of work to do. I had like the Lady Hume, the King's Deadline and I had more index stuff. And uh <laughs> yeah, so it was um there was I was there for three days, but I think one of a half, one and a half of them I spent on my laptop in our house. Okay. So, so the only other place you set foot in in New Zealand was Wellington. No, wait, hang on. <laughs> <laughs> I went to Abel Tasman National I just Park. did that for the pun. Okay. Oh, I didn't get it. Like, <laughs> the only place you put your foot in you you Wellington boot. Oh, I thought it was I, when you said it was a pun. I was like, because hobbits have hairy feet. I'm so confused. I'm not good with puns. You know this. Puns are my Achilles heel. You're kryptonite. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah. Sorry, I ruined. I ruined your joke. How big is New Zealand? <laughs> Small. Well, <laughs> spatially, geographically, it's big. It's about. I think it's slightly bigger than the UK. Spread over two yeah. islands. So, like, it's. 
you've got to drive for a few hours to get to various places. But in terms of population, um, it's really small. It's like a few million people in the entire country. A lot of sheep. A lot of sheep, yes. Lots and lots of sheep. There were like horrific stories. Like There's like loads of agriculture and there were loads of fires because it's the summer. And there was like a fire in like a chicken factory and all the chickens got burned alive and there was fire. Yeah, so they've, they've got lots of animals. But yeah, people-wise, it's... It's really, really small. Like in Wellington, the capital city, my niece repeatedly bumped into people from other towns that she knew, like oh, yeah. well enough to stop and talk to. Like, and that's the capital. It's you could walk across the centre of Wellington in like half an hour. Like, if you think about it, compared to London, it's yeah, yeah. Like London's population is bigger than the entirety of New Zealand. Do they? I mean, when you were going around, did you ever just? keep thinking of Flight of the Concords or No, I didn't think about it that much at all, sadly. No. Um I don't know what If I did word association with New Zealand, I think that's the first thing I, that would come to mind. Yeah. Or just Brett. I did well, what I did do a lot was when I was listening to people talk, I kept I, I I'm not going to do an impression of the New Zealand accent before you ask, but I did keep like practicing it in my head because it's like, yeah, over here your main exposure is Flight of the Concords and Brit and yeah. But I was like practicing in my head thinking, is there any yeah? interesting use of vowels <laughs> vowel <laughs> sounds and stuff so yeah but now i didn't really think about it too much but i did see the jeweler who made well not the man but the shop who made the lord of the rings ring the one ring oh wow yeah so it's uh, is there a big sign outside saying get your one ring here is <laughs> come get your one true ring no it's uh but it's in nelson and it's like um it's on a corner and it says it just says his name. I can't remember what his name is, and it's like the Ringmaker. And then they've got pictures of it on the side, and you can see them through the window. So that's pretty cool. Oh wow! Yeah. So main main export, I guess, isn't it? That and lamb. It's one of those places I I would like to go to one day. It's beautiful, absolutely beautiful. Some of the like places I went in terms of you know nature was yeah. uh, spectacular, like crazy pretty, and no one around really either. Like it's got the clearest water. In one of the springs, like on the, I don't know, the southern hemisphere or something. And it's, you're not allowed to touch it, but. You can't touch the water? No, because it's a sacred site to the Maori. Okay. So you can't, you're not allowed to. If Jay and Gates listen to this, he will be like, mm, oh yeah, Jay, you want to get involved in, um, yeah. The in, spirituality in, of water. Yeah, mm. it's re- it was really interesting, actually. They're, uh, I think they're, they kind of, I don't know if they're personified or like, it's like, um, it's a sacred place because it's like something to do with bringing life and stuff like that mm. i think there is maybe kind of there is like a god or something yeah this but, makes me sound i don't know what i'm talking about yeah. something along those lines sometimes i think those, <coughs> those things are interpreted as well as being almost like a communication to another world like yeah you know, they're like a gateway in some yeah respects. yeah it might be as well i, I mean a lot of my understanding is from moana the Disney film. Okay. I've so, actually seen that. Yeah. It's very good, actually. I only yeah. saw it recently, but uh, yeah. <laughs> did you see it in the lead up to the <laughs> that, was was my, that, your, that was my research. <laughs> my preparation was to watch that. Yeah. So, but um, yeah, and I went to the the main museum to Papa in Wellington, and read up, and there was a big section on. Um, it was really interesting, actually, the Maori and um, their interactions with, you know, Western mm. colonizers, basically. And the treaties and stuff, and that was that was interesting. Have you ever seen Hunt for the Wilder People? No, I haven't. It's I've really heard film. very really good things. Film. I yeah, really like it. yeah. No, I've never, I've never got around to watching it. Sam Neill is best. Oh, Sam Neill. Yeah, he's from 
New Zealand. He's from New Zealand. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Apparently, his Instagram is like gold. Okay. Just animals. I didn't realize he was on Instagram. I knew he was on Twitter. I, didn't realize I think it's Instagram. Instagram. Someone okay. told me this. I have to double check about that. I, I think Jeff, he's oh, got obviously a farm. I follow. Obviously, you follow the Goldblum. Yeah. <laughs> well, obviously, who doesn't? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, you need the full Jurassic Park uh, cast yeah. on Instagram, and then you're set. Yeah. Mm. What would you want? Yeah. So as you were saying, you were really busy. Yes. When you're out there, because. Drumroll, drum roll. your exhibition opens next week at yes. the Petrie Museum in London. It does. It sounds slightly grand to say that it's my exhibition. Well, I mean, <laughs> the, the exhibition, take all the credit now. Yeah, it's all me. It's all my own artwork. <laughs> no, it's, uh, yeah, it's really exciting. So it opens Monday, the 21st of January, 2019, for the people in the future who listen to this. And it's, well, it's an exhibition. It's it's small um, couple of cases, but it's based on Roman musical instruments in the Petrie collection. So it's basically, I'm working on a AHRC-funded two-year project with Alan Swift here at Kent, and it's looking at artefacts in the Petrie Museum collection. So it's a the Museum of Egyptian Archaeology that's associated with UCL. Yeah, and part of our project is this exhibition, which is looking at the sound-making artefacts in their collection because they've got quite a lot and they've never really been studied which is interesting in itself so we've been using i mean it's been great fun you've you've been involved in this slightly (laughs) of uh using the um, i laid down some sick beats yeah exactly um yeah we made um a series of replicas so we use we had lloyd bosworth here doing laser scanning and we've 3d printed replicas of things like panpipes and uh, the metal bells in their collection. And we've had pottery replicas of rattles and things like that being made. So they're all like hands-on things. They're, they're replicas that can be used and played, which you'd never be able to do with, obviously, the original artefacts in the museum. You know, there's a set of panpipes that are made out of reed and the, their survival is incredible. But conservation-wise, you can barely handle them, mm. let alone play them. But we've managed to laser scan them. 3D print them and they play a tune and they play a scale of notes that is known of from papyrological sources from the same period. So that's obviously reassuring that we're on the right track. But um, yeah, the exhibition is basically looking at all these sound making instruments. And if you go, you get to have a go on some of the replicas. Oh, are the replicas going to be there? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. nice. Yeah, so the replicas are there. So there's some instructions like if you want to know how to play the panpipes. You can have a go at playing the end bit of Ode to Joy because that luckily matches the scales that they're tuned to. And there's, uh, yeah, panpipes and stuff like that. You can have, um, and like rattles, you can have a go at. But then there's the original artefacts in the cases. Actually, I went up yesterday to see the installation of the exhibition in the Petri. And so all the, ca- the two cases were open and they were putting the, like a, you know, like the printed bits of information, the boards, the panels up, and it was really exciting. <laughs> <laughs> really, really exciting. I totally forgot, well, not totally, but I'd kind of forgotten that the whole point of all this work was to produce this actual exhibition and this event. And, like, because, you, you know, you spend so long, work, like, writing text on Word documents and looking at, you know, JPEGs of pictures and searching catalogues and stuff, and then you go and you're like, oh, yeah, it's going to be for this this cool exhibition so yeah so that was uh that was exciting then any of the recordings you made played back there at all Has anybody oh, yeah. listened to the 
Oh, yes. The catchy tunes. Yeah, and so I listened to them yesterday. So they're going to be on... There's two laptops. Lloyd here has basically programmed them so you can click on the picture of the replica instrument and it plays the sound recording that we did did on the replicas. So you can hear what all these replicas sound like. And yeah, as I went home on the train, I had, of course, the tune stuck in my head. You know, the... The one I can't remember we, how it goes now. Actually. No, I can't remember. No. <laughs> but there was that because there's the one with the singing. I got that one, the Sekalos epitaph tune. <laughs> You're looking at me blankly. It was the, you know the one that with the singing. So that was in my head as I as I was on the train. You should yeah. send me the MP3 file and I can use it as the theme tune of this episode. It, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you need to get the rights uh, like from uh, Ellen and uh, Ada yeah. since it's their voices featured. I'm sure. I'm sure there's some sort of thing. But yeah, it's very catchy. Yeah, so they'll be they'll be there available. Did you have much of a say at all in the design of the exhibition, or is that mainly down to the guys in the museum to orchestrate how that's going to look? So there are constraints. There are constraints in terms of how much space you've got for text panels and the format of the text panels. So there's a kind of there's like a template you you fill in. So there'll be a panel across the bottom of the each. Um, exhibition case so you've got a certain amount of space for text so you've got to think really carefully about what it is that you want to communicate and how you want to communicate that so you've got yeah templates for these basic panels and then UCL have also because it's run by UCL um their marketing uh department's got a specific color scheme you know like you get the palettes yeah um so you have to use colors specifically from the palette but you basically you, you fill out you know, you send all the text, you refine all the text that you want and you send it to their design team and they then input that onto the templates ready for production. Does this have the University of Kent logo anywhere? Or yeah. Is in a UCL building? I should have brought it with me. I've got, because um, we've got little booklets as well. Oh, okay. So on the back, you've got University of Kent cause it, and also because it's a collaborative project with Manchester Metropolitan University. So our other project member is um, April Pudsey from MMU um, so we've got all the logos we've got AHRC Petrie Kent and Manchester Met so they're all on the, the bottom there so they'll be in the exhibition as well but yeah in terms of like designing it Ellen was kind of took the lead with it she, she had very detailed plans of you know where the objects are going to go and what objects are going to be best to choose and there were other things that needed to be considered, like um, conservation of the objects. So the pan pipes were a bit of a concern because they're so fragile. Like if you look at the photos of them in the booklet that accompanies it, you can see that little bits have already come off. Like, but every time they move, they disintegrate a little bit more. Mm. So that's difficult. So we've we found some really cool stuff though from from the collection to kind of supplement it to give an idea of the kind of context that these instruments were used in. So we've used, um, we've got photos as well that we've got to kind of illustrate. So, you know, like mosaics, the Mariamim mosaic from Syria, where show, okay. it shows female musicians um, using the same instruments as we found in the Petrie collection. So that's exciting. So you can see the kind of the originals, the replicas, and then, you know, more comparative evidence. So. <laughs> That sounded very. It sounded like I knew what I was talking about. <laughs> <laughs> I just a great image in my mind. It would have been great if there was like a video player that showed outtakes of us recording the oh instruments. Oh God! When me and you were just the standing there looking reel. blankly, <laughs> <laughs> having like, to close our eyes to go, do a really basic beat. Yeah. 
It's oh, really, oh no! <laughs> it was so difficult. It was. It was. It was so much harder than you think it's going to be. Because it's because they're based on five beats in a bar instead of four beats, which is what we're used to. It's yeah. I found I found it too difficult. To be honest, it was slightly embarrassing, especially when you've got other people who are picking it up straight away, and there's me and you in the background. Struggling to just kind of keep a basic rhythm, <laughs> but never mind. We can't be good at everything. No. So you've got that going ahead. Yeah. Um, but you've also got the book on the way soon. The book is coming out twenty first of February. Oh well, wow. apparently. Exact. Yes, that's what it says on the website. So that's what I'm hoping um, will happen. So yeah, the book. I think it is pretty much all done. Actually, it's. Um, I think it's just the finalisation of the index now, and then, um, and then, yeah, I don't know. Maybe it will actually be made. It's quite exciting. It's very exciting, actually. And what is the book about? The book is so it's uh, so it's based on my PhD thesis. So it's been revised, ready for publication, and my it's, it's basically looking at value um, in terms of personal possessions and domestic artifacts. So my area of research is kind of the end of the Roman period in terms of material culture. I look a lot at Egypt, so late antique Egypt, because of the preservation conditions there. The There's just so much material that you don't find elsewhere in the empire, which means that it's a really interesting kind of resource and uh, context to look at if you're thinking about objects and things. But my research, the, the book basically looks um, at personal meanings. So... I'm sure anyone familiar with looking at material culture and thinking about what it's what it means and things like that. It's always economic value, social status, basically. Everyone's talking about, you know, what the intrinsic worth of an object is, gold, silver, gems, and what it's saying about someone's status in society. And I think that's obviously very valuable when we're trying to learn about the past, but it's quite a narrow way of looking at it. And excludes lots of other meanings which are a lot more subjective so personal meaning sentimental value you know why would someone maybe keep an item if it's not got a significant economic value or it doesn't reflect on their social status you know there are other you know multiple values that objects have and to to ignore those is I think quite limiting when we're thinking about the lives of people in the past so so yeah it's (laughs) ambitious perhaps no I said it like that but uh it's using lots of kind of theoretical approaches. Yeah, because I was going to say, like, how do you how do you actually establish that? Like, how do you establish yeah. like meaning other than obviously what you can gauge from it in terms of the material it's made yeah. from? How do you go about ascertaining it? How it might have a personal value to someone in the past? Um, so the way that I have approached it is looking at object biography, which is um, a theoretical approach, but a fairly simple one to be honest. It looks at what happens to objects during their lifespan so it's thinking about objects as not as though they were people but putting the same sort of considerations onto them so you think of moments within their lives so the moment that they were made or the moment that they were sold or someone bought them or they were modified perhaps or their context of use changed or they were discarded these are all significant points within an object's lifespan um and the theory goes that these are obje- these are the moments when meaning is created for objects. So I've used that as a system to look at evidence um, 
for personal possessions and domestic artifacts from late antiquity. So I've been looking at context of like acquisition, movement of objects between people. So I've I've done it thematically and I've looked at gift objects because the significant moment in the biography is obviously someone giving a gift to another person. And obviously there's all the related theories, you know, Marcel Mouse and stuff like that. This idea that meaning is created through that action and then that meaning is inherent within the object. Um, also, it's like when you get so suddenly yeah. country, it's like when you get a, a gift for Christmas that you don't want yeah. but you kind of hold on to it yeah. so you can't get rid of it because exactly. I want to give it to you as a gift so yeah it's really it's so like you look at it you're like oh I hate this but you yeah. you know when someone gives you like a Lynx shower set for Christmas and you're like yeah yeah, uh, <laughs> but you keep it forever <laughs> yeah you keep it forever you just don't ever because it's so it. meaningful um, yeah no yeah so exactly like it's it's things it's, the, it's basically thinking about objects perhaps in a similar way to we think about them today. So we, we, you know, what does that then tell us about the culture in the past? I don't think it's anachronistic to think about these things. I think it's a shame to not consider them when we're thinking about Mm. objects. But I also look at souvenirs, which is really interesting. Um, So secular and pilgrim souvenirs. Um, And then uh, heirlooms as well. So the passing of objects through inheritance. Um, So these are kind of easy ways to identify Objects that might have specific meaning. And then it goes from there, really. <laughs> Some cracking baskets as well. Oh, and yeah, there's a whole there's a whole chapter on baskets, <laughs> which I love. So that's my that's my pride and joy, the but the the discussion on baskets. So um I've tried to champion them, these over, slightly overlooked artifacts. And especially in Egypt because um it's so dry that you get these organic materials that survive. So you've got baskets being made by early Christian monks and remains of them. Like if you go to, for example, the Petrie Museum, they've got a great collection of Roman baskets, which sounds so niche. But baskets are great and I will not hear anything otherwise. Didn't you go to a basket making workshop? I did. Did that? <laughs> I did indeed. <laughs> this has turned into the uh, basket the podcast. Basket show, yeah. <laughs> Did that, but did that have any effect on you in terms of how you approach the the evidence? Yeah, going through the process of actually creating the object yourself. Yeah, I mean, I think especially. Did it? Did it I was going to say, like, without being sl- like slightly joking, but did it create meaning for you in terms of? Could you then make a basket? Yeah. And you're like, oh, I made this. Oh, well, this. exactly, exactly. Yeah. So, like, if you think about how an object was created, if you make something, then that's you know that's your time, that's your energy, that's your creative force that's gone into it, and that is going to be. I think most people would consider that differently to a basket you might go out and buy. And that's not to say one is more valuable than the other, but I think that you would, there are different meanings inherent within them. Um, and I do think actually, yeah, that I love baskets partly so much, <laughs> which makes me sound obsessed with them, but I'm not. Um, because um, it was a moment when I was doing my PhD research where I, you know, you get the moment where you're like, this is great. What I'm doing is great. And I'm really <laughs> not great as in, oh, it's brilliant. But like, I'm really enjoying the process of this. I feel like this research is really exciting me. And I think I, I found something that feels like it's more my thing. I feel like this is something that reflects my own research and my own interests. Um, so, yeah, I think that's also why I, I, can, I really like baskets, because I feel like it was the moment when I really got to grips with my, my research. But, um, yeah, the basket course was good it sounds awful if i describe it because it's it's cool it's making it out of paper as well so it's like you go in and you've got 
coloured card and you know round-ended scissors but it's plaited basketry which is the the kind of baskets that were um produced in egypt and still produced now you can go and buy these sorts of baskets not made out of paper but you can get them made out of paper but generally like plant fiber so yeah i got to go up to london and do do that it was interesting seeing the other ranges of people who were there to make baskets like there were theater prop designers who wanted to learn new skills to make new props for the theatre and shows and jewellery designers and stuff. So it's interesting seeing what kind of people are interested in accessing these skills that are kind of not really prevalent in mainstream society. Although you could argue craft is making a huge comeback. But mm. but yeah, so that was interesting. And I think experimental archaeology in particular is really valuable when you're doing artefact research. If you're looking at material culture, then if you understand the way that something is made then that is only going to enhance your understanding of the objects and the way that they were used and valued in the past. And, yeah, it's, I mean, it's fun as well, obviously, <laughs> which is always what I'm after. Um, but there's some things that you could read the description of someone making something. And I have read descriptions of how, you know, baskets have been made. And it's complicated to try and convey that sort of knowledge through the written word whereas if you sit and someone shows you how to do it and you're interacting physically with the material then you're understanding you know the movements involved the limitations of the material your own limitations in your own skills and the way that you interact and and these are things that you can't really learn so easily from you know book reading yeah i imagine that sort of thing the transparency of knowledge that's one of those things that most people probably do learn by seeing it yeah. and doing it as yeah. opposed to trying to read it from a book. Yeah. Um, I suppose in some respects, that's why YouTube's uh, so great for yeah. video, like videos when you want to learn how to do something or even like you've got something around the home that you need to do yeah. and you just go onto YouTube and you watch a video rather yeah. than read it from a DIY book now. I mean, it's more immediate, but also because you're actually visually seeing what it is you yeah. need to do. Exactly. No, completely. And I've been looking at YouTube videos for... Um, so the research I'm doing as part of this project, it looks partly... I've been looking partly at um, spinning and we were well, not so much weaving, but spinning of wool, which was a huge, you know, female activity in antiquity, broadly speaking. Um, that reminds me of the uh, Flight of the Concord song where he's like, you're a woman and you like to weave. <laughs> I don't remember that. Uh, it's where they're doing the uh, toothpaste advert and they've got to come up with a song for it. What series it's, is that? It's fem- feminine toothpaste. It's toothpaste for women. and They get asked to do the advert for it. I know it's, it's one of the very the first episodes, I think. It was one of the. It's a really early episode, but yeah, they one of the lyrics they come up with is "You're a woman and you like to weave." <laughs> see, that's it. That's exactly <laughs> it. If only I'd known that. I'm going to go check that out and see if I can crowbar that into the uh, <laughs> into this research project. Then a little cultural reference. But yeah, that it sounds really simple, spinning wool, but it's difficult. I bought like a spindle and some carded wool that is unspun. And I've had to watch a lot of YouTube videos to try and understand the movements involved. It's that thing. It's a bit like, you know, like patting your, patting your, I don't even know which way around, patting your head and rubbing your tummy. That makes your brain feel the same sort yeah. of kind of stretch as you're trying to, trying to do these new movements. But. I can try. Yeah, no, it's it's straight actually, away. Straight I'm in. Try. I suppose because I'm not really thinking about it. No, wait, no, I've done it wrong now. Now I'm actually, my head, my hand's going around my head. Wait, no. It's harder, actually, to do. Oh, no, now I started thinking oh, about it. I can't do it. it. Yeah. Like, no. without, when I just went to do it, it worked. And then, yeah. It's difficult. Yeah. That's basically 
It's basically spinning. That's basically spinning. Yeah. Okay. If you want to know what spinning's like, try and pat your head and rub your tongue. At the I same mean, time. yeah. If you, if you, <laughs> for someone who who is an absolute amateur, I, I should probably say, I'm not. I'm not very proficient in it. I gave up quite quickly. I need to have another go. Have you Have you adapted the PhD much between? When you wrote the PhD to now mm. now publishing it, I was just wondering because for my one, I pretty much completely rewrote it and condensed it down quite yeah. a lot, which took a fair bit of time in some respects. Which I suppose took away time. I think in retrospect now, there's there's other things. Well, there's always going to be more stuff that you want to add. Mm. But did you did you alter yours that much at all, or did you? Is it pretty much PhD straight into? Um, I did make some significant alterations i don't think there were sections that didn't really need to be rewritten so much the sections where it was more just putting kind of more assertive language in you know what it's like when you've written your phd and it's like this might oh god yeah suggest that perhaps um so i changed i did a lot of changes to say you know to make it just clear like this means that xyz um but there were i think there's things that you include in your phd that don't need to be included in in a publication mm. so i had a whole section as a source critique going through all the evidence i had a whole section on the theoretical approaches i was using that was another chapter that was all separate to my introduction so i think that was it so the, basically those three all the best bits got condensed <laughs> into one introduction um and there were things like i just need to talk less about things in the abstract and directly relate using specific examples of objects to illustrate like the theoretical approaches and things like that. Um, that, that I think that was the main thing. That and um, the images. The images <laughs> required um, quite a lot of time and energy. And to bleed money. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Lots of grant applications to be written to try and find someone to fund. How many images copyright. did you end up with in the end? I cut quite a lot out. I had okay. originally, I think, 80 to 90 images in it. And I think it is now... Oh, I should know this. Because yours, I think it was must be quite visual. I would imagine in some yeah, respects. yeah. Especially like there's the chapter on souvenirs. You're talking about well, the chapter on souvenirs and on heirlooms as well. You're talking about iconography. You know what objects look like. What kind of imagery has been used on them. So you need to have pictures, really. Mm. Luckily, a lot of what um, I've been looking at are in open access collections <coughs> online. So the Met Museum in new york their images are all open access and a lot of them are discussed within my thesis so that was you know perfect um but yeah i i cut a, quite a few out i think i've got maybe 40 now okay still so quite a few. yeah there's still quite a lot um i padded it out as well because some of the well not padded it out that sounds awful <laughs> <laughs> i added some new images as well because um some of the pictures that i had um it wasn't very clear what was happening with the objects so there's um you get the gold glass vessel bases you know really late antique kind of objects um that have gold glass gold designs in the glass basically um and they were likely commemorative vessels often just from the imagery on them and some of them are quite corroded um kind of degraded material so i learnt how to do drawings of them so i did my own drawings using whatever programs um to trace them so that you can see like there's a line drawing to accompany it so you can see exactly what the imagery is or as well as 
you know we can make out so there are a few extra ones in there but i must say a lot of a lot of it was dictated by cost to a certain extent so expensive in some yeah, cases it's I th- just ridiculously expensive i think i spent i say i spent i got a very generous grant from i think it was the hugh last fund the roman society mm, um they gave me some money as well yeah they're really thank good you, yeah exactly thank you very much roman society <laughs> i'm writing my uh what was it grant statement <laughs> saying what i did with your money and it will be coming to you shortly um yeah, uh, I think I got seven hundred and fifty pounds, and that went on lots of lots of images. The Vatican was very expensive, <laughs> which is surprising and yet not surprising, yeah. I guess. But yeah, there's a lot actually. Just ask for a copy of the book in exchange, yeah. which is you know quite nice. Except you know when you've got ten different places you need to send books to. Bruce supposed to be giving me about eight copies. It's not turned up yet though. So oh really? Still yeah, yeah. There's there. I think it was um. Well, there's one museum in the states that have asked for two copies, which I felt was yeah. slightly greedy. Yeah. yeah, but I when I spoke to Brill, because I basically I I didn't have enough from my quota that they said I'd get, and I want to give my mum one. Yeah. <laughs> and I want a copy for myself. So um, they seem that seem to make out it'd be quite easy for me to get. I think I'm getting. A, I think I'm getting twelve. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So that would be good, because yeah, I want. I want. A, I want a copy of my own book, definitely. Something to buy my piece. Exactly, frame, put it up on the wall, <laughs> <laughs> coffee table, permanently on my coffee table. Above the toilet. Every yeah. Time goes in. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Actually, I should have got more copies so I could have them more, more than one yeah, throughout the house. Yeah. On the door, outside. Yeah. Um, yeah. Have there been any objects that have really stood out for you? Is there anything, I mean, given the fact that you, you're obviously looking into emotional connection mm. to objects, have there been any objects that you found where you're like, oh, that's, that's really generated some sort of emotion in you, mm. other than baskets? Other, other than baskets, <laughs> God, okay. Is there other anything than other baskets? than baskets? Yeah, there, yeah. Um, there are some, there's objects that I think are, like, for example, in the book that I think are amazing and really evocative as well, especially in the souvenirs section images where or objects that have images of um like monuments on so there's a glass jug from um slovenia that's got an etched image of the alexandrian pharos lighthouse Mm. on it and um a lot also a lot of the pilgrim souvenirs there's pilgrim vessels and they've got you know images to do with where they came from on that and i think that's quite evocative I've got a good imagination, so in my head I'm imagining, you know, the person who's you know, <laughs> gone and got it, and they're taking it all the way back home. So, um, so they're they're very cool. But there's some great objects that we've come across in the Petrie Museum collection in the current project that I think are uh, amazing. And also a lot of the objects that we're looking at, because the Roman collection is generally a bit neglected. You know, if you go to an um, Egyptian archaeological museum most people are interested in dynastic egypt mm. you know the pharaohs all that sort of stuff um which means that a lot of the roman stuff gets kind of ignored or if people are doing studying the roman period in egypt a lot of people focus on papyri and stuff like that instead of the stuff we've got in collections over here so a lot of the things you look at are you know haven't really been studied since they were excavated at the turn of the century so there's you know objects that are wrapped up in newspaper from the original excavation wow. so the yeah, newspaper dated 1886 Jesus. yeah and that's what 
you know so it's it's like, like those layers of history as well it's like the front cover it's like Queen Victoria celebrates Diamond Jubilee or whatever yeah, like. exactly. <laughs> yeah it's like yeah it was um, it's amazing so you get you know you get the artifact that you're looking at but it's brought out in for example um, a 1920s matchbox where clearly whoever was excavating on the site had that in their pocket and they put it in and then that is then in it turn you know like in the little crystal boxes you know conservation grade so you've got these layers of history and actually i find that really evocative the history yeah. of the excavations yeah, themselves yeah, it's, it's really cool yeah it's really like a little snapshot of history and it's especially exciting to think that you know who knows last time someone bothered to you know request this box of like odds and ends so it's like sat in the ground for couple of thousand years it's been mm. dug up put into a box and then it's after another hundred years for somebody yeah. to look at it again yeah it's like a kind of a lot of the stuff we looked at was it was like re-excavating trying and because the you know because the excavations happened such a long time ago they were still developing ways of recording context and things like that and then a lot of the contexts have been lost and petrie in particular wasn't that interested in the roman period so he the details that are recorded are not so thorough. So you're really, it's like a real investigation trying to piece together all these bits of evidence. So you've got this like amazing object, but to try and reconstruct where it was excavated or its date, it requires quite a lot of effort. Mm. So it's, yeah, it, it's, it was really, it's really interesting going through those extra processes with these objects that, yeah, no one's looked at for however long. Mm-hmm. Mm. I, well, some of them obviously they've looked at. Not to kind of claim a stake on all of the Roman <laughs> collection of the Petrie Museum. <laughs> so take me back then. So how did you end up coming to study the ancient world? So because you went to university, you took a couple of years out, didn't you? Before going yeah. to university, but you you as you explained to me before, I have uh, a slightly interesting story because you went to two universities and then, uh... <laughs> yeah I sound like a classic dropout basically well, well I mean <laughs> quite, quite the opposite by this point I think well I mean, yeah I got there eventually um, yes it's, it's, it's worked out in the long run it has worked out in the long run I don't know why I said that um, yeah so I when I left college I was going to have a gap year anyway and then I'd applied for I don't know I'd gone I feel like I felt like I looked at every university in the UK you know you get on that treadmill of I'll go for an open day and I'll look round but I had no real idea of what it was I wanted to study everyone at you know college had told me you need to apply for university you you know you need to go to university and I wanted to but I in retrospect can see that I wasn't really ready I certainly wasn't ready to choose a discipline I think I applied first of all to Bristol to do politics and I got an unconditional place, which I was told was, oh, that's amazing. You know, this oh, man, is... I'm just thinking in alternate reality, you might be trying to sort out Brexit at the moment. I could. We might never be in this problem. <laughs> <laughs> we might never be in this situation. If only I had <laughs> taken the other route. Another reality with Prime Minister Stoner. Uh, <laughs> Prime Minister be... Stoner. That's quite the, it's got quite the ring to it, hasn't it? I couldn't think of anything worse, to be frank. Um, yeah, so I, I was meant to take up this place at Bristol to do politics because I did law A-level. And I really enjoyed it, but I didn't want to be a lawyer. So I figured in a kind of 17-year-old mentality of, well, politics is sort of like law or like there's some link there. So I was really interested in current affairs and things like that. So, But the closer it came, I didn't want to go. I didn't want to move away. I didn't want to do politics. I didn't know anything about politics. It was a decision I felt like I was making because I felt I had to make a decision. So I cancelled my place there and I worked in an office doing admin for a few years. Um, And then I 
apply, I knew I still wanted to go to university and I reapplied. I was still under 21, so I wasn't a mature student yet. And I, w- I thought I really wanted to go to London. But again, I still didn't know really what I wanted to do. And you still was interested in like the news and current affairs and stuff like that and what was happening in the world. And I applied to all these places like LSE and stuff and I got rejected. The one place that accepted me was Kingston-upon-Thames University. And I was doing... So I, I went there, basically. I went there for one term to do uh, international studies, which, I, you know, what's that mean? <laughs> uh, but um, it was international studies, um, and it basically took modules from a variety of other disciplines. So you did an international relations module. You did a module on history. I didn't read the prospectus properly, and you also did a module on economics, <laughs> which <laughs> I hated. I swear, I didn't understand it. I had no interest in it. I spent all my time struggling with graphs where it showed profit margins and all these things that were actual you know complete I don't know just not not my thing at all and I didn't really enjoy the student living um I was a little bit older than the other my other flatmates so for that I I wanted to go to sleep (laughs) and they didn't and like my room was next to the kitchen and I heard them you know staying up this makes me sound so lame (laughs) But I, I was a little older. I'd already done it. Um, and then there was a broken fire alarm that was the other side of my room. So it was beeping all night. My window didn't shut properly. So when people went outside to smoke, all the smoke came into my room. It was just miserable. <laughs> <laughs> or rather, it was fun to a point And then it became miserable. So I, I basically spent my entire loan allowance and then went home and quit. Which I found incredibly embarrassing. I felt like I'd really failed. It was it wasn't a very pleasant experience, but I knew that it was the decision I had to make because <laughs> it would be foolish for the sake of pride to carry on for another, you know, two and a half years doing this thing I didn't want to do. So yeah, I quit, went back to this office job. And then eventually God, this is a really long time ago. <laughs> yeah, struggling to remember. I was like, right. I really want to go to university. I really want to study. I want to be passionate about something. And I just took it back to basics. I was a bit older and I thought, what is it I actually am interested in? What do I want to do? I'd always loved going to museums and galleries. I was really interested in heritage, loved, you know, National Trust, things like that. I'd volunteered for the National Trust previously. And I was like, okay, I'm not going to go. I'm not going to try and go somewhere, you know, miles away just for the sake of it. I'm going to look to see... So I looked at the University of Sussex because I'm from Eastbourne near Brighton. This is based in just outside Brighton. Um, And they had an art history uh, department that is, yeah, it's a really excellent department. Yeah, I love Sussex. (laughs) (laughs) Got a lot, you know, it's a special place in my heart for art history at Sussex. So, yeah, I went, I basically, I went there. I think I wrote something ridiculous in my personal statement. Like, I know I look like a complete liability having (laughs) failed twice. But I think I was over 21 by this point and they probably had, I don't know, a quota for mature students or something. (laughs) But it's a really small department. And I went there and it was like the best decision I ever made. So I ended up specialising with Liz James um, in Byzantine art history. Did that to, uh, did that to um, master's level. And then... Yeah, saw an advert for a a position, uh, a PhD funded position here at Kent, looking at late antique um, cities. And I'd done quite a lot of stuff on the Byzantine period and it was something I wanted to continue. And I was working in a school office doing admin after my master's, basically. And I remember um, talking a lot to 
psychology PhDs that were coming in and teaching classes. And it was just, yeah, my own arrogance. I just thought, well, I can do that. <laughs> I'm better than doing basic admin. And I, it basically made me think, oh, I need to, I don't want to work in an office. I don't want to just be doing filing for the rest of my life. I've got like these interests. So yeah, so I applied here for the PhD project on the visualisation of the late antique city. Um, yeah, and got a position researching material culture with Ellen Swift. Mm. And uh and then it went from there. <laughs> <laughs> it's just interesting what you're saying. It just reminds me, like, earlier when you were talking about the, the, the growing interest in baskets, mm. that Ellen was saying a similar thing about how she finds things in her research and then she almost takes it up as a hobby in yeah. her spare time. Like, she gets really into, like, different things yeah. through through her research. I think it's, yeah, I, I think exactly the same. Yeah, really. I think it just, a lot of research makes you encounter things you wouldn't normally and it makes you think about things in a different way. Like especially objects and modes of making and things like that. And I think also when you're sat in front of a desk all day, in front of a computer, you so much of what we do is like non-interactive. You're sitting trying to write words down on a screen that it's really kind of cathartic and it's really beneficial to do something practical. You know, you put effort in, you do something with your hands and then you've kind of got an object created it at the end of it so I got really into sewing as well um and yeah I love I love craft (laughs) I love craft I'm probably a bit of a cliche (laughs) but uh yeah I find it really enjoyable I need to get back into it I haven't done enough recently I don't really have the the capacity to do that with some of my research really You'd unless, have to... I, unless I joined a cult. I was going to say, yeah. <laughs> is there anything I could do? I got really into cults. So. Yeah. I found these great bunch of guys. Oh, love, uh... love the Kool Aid now. Love the Kool Aid. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, I'm going to keep an eye on you then. So, just to kind of wrap it up, because I did get a nod through the window a moment ago, being like, you've got 10 minutes. Who was that? It was Charlie. Oh, really? I think the BBC people are coming in to do something. Because oh. um, to... they, they use this studio. It's actually I... their studio, really. Is it? Uh, it was like co owned, yeah, yeah. Huh. But yeah, if people then want to find you, they because you have the blog. Is the blog still going? Yeah, or? the blog's still going. In fact, I need to edit a post and post one today about the exhibition. Um, the blog is, oh, what is the blog? The blog oh. address is, it's quite long. <laughs> I think it's basically if you chuck in, what can you chuck into Google to find it? Oh, if you do um, late antique Roman Egypt. It will come up. It's the only mm. thing that comes up. If you, yeah, Roman Egypt artifacts, Kent, it will come up. Yeah. It's it's a Kent blog, Kent website. Yeah, there's that. So there's the exhibition runs till. Um. So it's the twenty second of uh, January to the twenty second of April um, okay. at the Petrie Museum. Um. And they've got links on their website to it as well. And there's be links on the blog. I'll give you the address. I'm sure you can stick it on. The yeah. Blog and the book is out with Brill next month. Yes. Twenty. I, th- I feel like I, u- I knew the date at the beginning of this podcast yeah. and I've forgotten it. Again, though, it's, it's online. So basically, you yeah. put Joe Stoner into... Basically, you put Joe Stoner into Google, surely. You, it should come up. Yeah, Everything should come up. Yeah. yeah hopefully. Um, and hopefully. also, as well, very quickly, you have your track session as well. I do have track session. So April, um, here at Kent, we've got track 2019. And I'm co-chairing a session with Dr. Boris Barant from um, Frankfurt University, Goethe University over there, um, and we're doing it on value, um, the value of Roman material culture. So we've got a really interesting range of papers looking at different scales of value and different types of material evidence. So that should be 
very good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> all go, go, go at it the is. moment. Go, go, go. It's all coming up. I don't know. Stoner. That's a great. I'll, let, I'll keep you that in. That's, 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 I instantly that's, regret saying that. <laughs> it's all coming up, Stoner. Yeah. Great. Thank you very much. No, thank you. Thanks for listening to Coffee and Circuses. The Roman poet Juvenal once said, people will be content as long as you give them bread and circuses. But if I'm going to talk to somebody, I'd rather do it over coffee than bread. You can find me, David Walsh, on Twitter at D underscore J underscore Walsh or contact me about the show at coffeeandcircuses at gmail.com. That's with a full and. Don't forget, you can subscribe, rate and review the show on iTunes and Spotify. Big thank you to the Institute of Classical Studies who support the podcast via one of their public engagement grants. The theme tune is La Cajora by Roll Music, available for download at freemusicarchive.org. And in the background right now, you can hear an 8-bit version of the Indiana Jones theme by Miles Metal, originally by John Williams, but you all know that, which is available on YouTube. Thanks again for listening, and remember, it's better to be a gladiator than a Diocletian. Diocletian.